Welcome to All Things with Jen Oshman, where we look at current events and trends through a Christian lens. All things were created through Jesus and for Jesus, so we're seeking to apply his word to what's happening here and now. This episode of All Things is brought to you by Crossway, publisher of the new book, The Lord of Psalm 23, Jesus, Our Shepherd, Companion, and Host by David Gibson. Psalm 23 is one of the most recognizable passages in the whole Bible. Though relatively short, this poetic depiction of God's love epitomizes Christ's goodness and provision as he leads his children. Even lifelong Christians will find fresh encouragement by closely studying these familiar words. David Gibson walks through each verse in Psalm 23, thoroughly examining its three depictions of the believer's union with Christ as sheep and shepherd, traveler and companion, and guest and host. Gibson provides canonical context for the psalm's beautiful imagery, inspiring praise, and wonder as readers reflect on the loving shepherd who meets every need. Pick up a copy of The Lord of Psalm 23 wherever books are sold or visit crossway.org forward slash plus and get 30% off with your Crossway Plus account. On today's episode of All Things, we are taking a closer look at adoption, specifically cross-cultural and transracial adoption. If you've been listening to me or reading my work for any length of time, you probably know that I am passionate about adoption and foster care and caring for vulnerable children in general. Well, 13 years ago, we became an adoptive family, and many of our closest friends are also deeply involved in foster care and adoption. In the 20 years or so that I've been active in the adoption community, I have observed a number of shifts, and many of them have been really, really good. One such shift has been to better equip and train foster and adoptive parents so that they are trauma-informed and better able to pursue attachment with their children in healthy ways, plus just navigate myriad other difficulties that inevitably arise. Our dialogue in this sphere of adoption and foster care has been more fully formed to, I think, quickly acknowledge that foster care and adoption are always rooted in loss. A tremendous loss had to occur in a child's life to make him or her in need of a family. Um, so I love to hear that converse, when conversations are rooted in that reality. More recently, I've seen a great improvement in raising the voices of birth moms and adoptees. This is really crucial. We have a long ways to go here, but I do love to see that improvement. Um, another area where I've seen some good change is in dialogue surrounding race and ethnicity in adoption. So on today's episode, I'm chatting with Dr. Brittany Salmon, who, as you'll hear in a minute, is an advocate in all of these areas that I just talked about. Brittany and I are going to focus especially on cross-cultural or transracial adoption. But here are some numbers just to get this conversation going, some background for this conversation. There are currently 5 million Americans who are adoptees. One in 25 families has children who have been adopted. And then here's what's really interesting and what we're kind of going to hone in on. Today, more than 40% of adoptions are transracial, according to the Department of Health and Human Services. So this is up from just 28% of adoptions back in 2004. A large majority of adoptive parents are white, older, well-educated, and relatively affluent. Okay, here is a look at adoptees. Um, in terms of breakdown by ethnicity. The largest group of adoptees are white, making up to 39% of adopted children. 
Hispanic children are the next largest portion, representing nearly 23% of all adoptees. Um, Asian children are 17%, multiracial children 11%, black children 9%, and then finally children who are of indigenous people's descent make up the remaining 1% of adoptees. Here are two interesting trends when it comes to ethnicity and adoption. The proportion of adoptees with Asian backgrounds tripled in the early 2000s, while at the same time, the fraction of adopted children who are African-American fell by quite a bit. So there's these background trends that kind of point to this. So researchers have said these background trends, um, you know, cultural trends and cultural values, even legalities here in the U.S. or overseas, um, they're kind of the background to numbers like this. Obviously, we're not going to have an exhaustive conversation, but as we look at those trends, you have to ask the question, well, why is that? So for example, the one-child policy in China, which has been historically strictly enforced, has led to a high number of Chinese girls being adopted here in the U.S., in the last few decades. Um, And then cultural pressure in the Black community has led to Black children who are in need being cared for by extended family rather than placed for adoption or foster care. Additionally, there has been an increase in cultural pushback against upper middle class whites adopting Black or American Indian babies from poor families. So there's just some pressure being applied there to those who adopt to do so in ways that are ethical, which is obviously really good, or maybe for them to pursue adoptions that will be less controversial or less questioned by their communities. Um, there's also been some court cha- court cases and some changes in agencies and institutions that facilitate adoption, um, preventing some of those adoptions from continuing forward. Okay, a few more numbers that I want to share with you before we move on. Adopted children who are being raised by parents of a different race or ethnicity from themselves breaks down like this. 90% of Asian adoptees have parents who are not Asian. 64% of multiracial adoptees are being raised by parents of a different race or ethnicity. 62% of Hispanic adoptees and 55% of Black adoptees have adoptive parents of a different race or ethnicity. By contrast, only 3% of white adoptees have been adopted by parents of a different race or ethnicity. So keep listening here as I invite Dr. Brittany Salmon on, and we're going to dive into just a number of different issues related to adoption and foster care. Also, be sure to check the show notes because I'm going to be including a ton of resources there. Everything from books and conferences and websites for families involved in foster care and adoption, um, but also organizations and places where your church or you as an individual can come along alongside families or parents who are at risk. Um, That is a shift that I have seen recently that I think is so good. There's been a surge in recent years in organizations and individuals that come alongside parents before they reach a tipping point of losing their children or having to make a truly difficult decision. Organizations like Safe Families, for example, and others that I'll be listing there. So you don't have to be a foster or adopt a family to play a role here. There are so many other things that people can do, and we all do have a role, um, but there's a diversity of them. So listen in to what I hope will be an informative conversation. It does indeed take more than love. Thank you. So November is National Adoption Month, and I am really pleased to introduce today's guest, Dr. Brittany Salmon, who is an adoptive mom. She has done some deep thinking and writing on adoption and especially 
the complexities of cross-cultural adoption. She recently received her doctorate from Southeastern Seminary, where she studied racial representation in children's Christian literature. So welcome, Brittany, to all things. Hey, thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Okay, so we were just saying offline, we feel like we're good friends because we have followed each other on the internet for so long. And so I just feel like, you know, you're my friend and I'm thankful for um, just the interaction that we have online and for the chance to have this conversation with you. But not every listener, they might not know who you are. So tell us a little bit about your family, your background, uh, why I reached out to you today. Sure. So we're an adoptive family. Um, I'm married to my husband, Ben, for 13 years. And we have five kids. We have twin 11-year-old girls. And for the sake of this conversation, I'll differentiate who joined our family via adoption and who I birthed. So um, I don't do that in normal life. I don't say, these are the children I birthed and these are the ones we adopted. But in in conversations like these, it's helpful. Um, So I have twin daughters who I birthed. They're 11, Felicity and Noelle. Um, Jude is seven. Zeke is three, almost four, and Eva's a newborn, and the bottom three joined our family via adoption. Um, But we live in Wilmington, North Carolina. Um, We're members of a local church here. My husband, um, he he is not a minister or in ministry any longer, although we were for a season. Um, And so we just are doing everyday normal life work out here, and my ministry um, is writing and teaching and um, speaking on not just adoption, but also just the gospel in general. Mm, yes, I love that. Okay, so November is National Adoption Month, and I know that adoption and this month in particular is important to you because every November I see you posting things online um, just with a really sweet spirit of, I want to speak to the church. I want to help the church understand some things. Um, I want to help families who are adoptive or those who know adoptive families understand some of the complexities of adoption. Um, so, Let's just lay the foundation. I know that maybe this feels like sort of a silly first question, but I am surprised by how often it comes up, actually, to be honest. So I think we should just start here with the very basic question of, should people pursue adoption? Is this a good calling? That's a great question. And I think it's a necessary one because if we look at the history of evangelical culture, and let's just for the sake of this conversation, talk about the church. from probably 2004 to 2015, there was a strong decade-long push of, if you're willing and able, you should adopt. Everybody should adopt. There's a huge need. And I think that that narrative, um, although rooted in really good intentions, um, we've discovered is not actually true. No, not everyone should adopt. Um, Not everyone should foster. Not everyone should be involved with either of those things. But yes, the church should Everybody in the church should care for um, unwed mothers. They should care for orphans. They should care for widows. Um, We should care for children in crisis who are in desperate need of a safe and loving family. Yes, we should all care about those things. But no, not everyone should adopt. This is not just a copy and paste. Well, if I can do it, everybody can. That's just not true. Um, And I don't think we do that to other callings in life. And we don't do that in other scenarios. But for some reason, um, I think as a good I hate to even use our marketing ploy because that sounds very almost like businessy, but I think as a push to really inspire the church to get involved in some of these difficult scenarios, um, that kind of language was used for a long while. And so, yeah, I'm glad you asked that question because the answer is no, (laughs) not everyone should adopt, but yes, there are some families who, um, 
I think are equipped or will be open to being equipped along the way, um, who have a heart for welcoming a child via adoption or foster care. And those families, absolutely, yes, get involved. Let's go. Um, and it, and we're, you're going to learn along the way. You're going to make a ton of mistakes. Um, but I do believe that there are some families who are very, God has uniquely gifted and called to this, to this area. Yeah. I'm, I'm grateful that you, you know, sort of called out what I have definitely seen as well. And I think that's why the conversation persists. I mean, I even saw some craziness. I don't know if you go over to Twitter or X anymore. You, you shouldn't sometimes. <laughs> um, but there was just a crazy kerfuffle about all this a couple days ago where some people were saying strongly um, that we should not adopt. And I'm like, well, that's crazy talk. But also, I think it's the pendulum swing back from yes. what you said that, you know, we 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 saw 10 years ago and many families got caught up in and maybe made a lifelong change for you know, innocent children, that was not a, not a good call. Um, so I, I love what you're saying that it's, we are all required, clearly commanded and have the invitation to participate in caring for widows and orphans, the marginalized, the vulnerable, whoever, but not necessarily adopt. Why? And this might be sort of go without saying as well, but I think it's, it's just helpful to rehearse what's true and necessary and good in this conversation. Why does adoption and foster care even exist? Can you lay that foundation for us? Why why is it necessary? That's a I mean, that's a very complex question and and the answer is not going to be straightforward. There are a number of reasons why it exists. You know, we can get as general as like, well, sin and brokenness. <laughs> yes, right. sure. But we're looking at poverty, we're looking at food insecurity, we're talking about drug addiction, we're talking about war. Um, there are a number of things, whether we're talking about domestic and international and global issues, um, why foster care and adoption exist. And those are two, they're connected things, but they're also very different things. If you look at foster care, um, there's a huge need right now for safe families. Um, I think I saw that the, the most recent statistic is there are currently 114,000 children who are waiting to be adopted. That's not in foster care. Those are ones who are eligible for adoption. So their parental rights have already been terminated who are in desperate need for permanent families. Um, so there is this need, but there's a lot of numbers. I mean, to say you'll hear, especially on the internet and social media, well, it's just poverty or, well, it's just this or throw money at this. And really it's a, there's a, it's a very nuanced, complex um, stream that eventually leads families to separation and brokenness. Um, and I, and adoption and foster care aren't the only solutions. Um, CASA, being supportive of um, reunification, having churches that aren't just wrapping around teams around adopted and foster families, but saying, actually, the parents who had their, you know, rights suspended and possibly terminated, can we also have wraparound teams for them where we're going to work on getting them adequate transportation for jobs? We're going to hire them in our local businesses just regardless of their, um, maybe their history, like whether felonies or things like that, we're going to partner with rehab counselors in a rehab facility and make sure that anybody who wants to get clean, we're going to walk alongside of them the long haul, not just the six weeks. And so there's so many issues at hand, so many issues at hand that it's hard to say it's just this one thing. It's just there's sin and brokenness and heartache and obviously poverty, obviously addiction, obviously a number of things that play into this. Um, but it's hard to say, well, it's just this one thing. 
Because I think if it was just one thing, we would have fixed it by now. <laughs> but sure. we, we, that's, that's, you know, adoption's not the answer. Foster care is not the answer to all those problems. But it is sometimes a necessary solution for those 114,000 kids in the United States right now who will never be reunified with their parents. Yeah. It is a necessary option um, for women who find themselves with an unexpected pregnancy and say, I don't, I don't want to choose abortion, but I also cannot parent these, this child right now, but I do want them to have a safe and loving family. It is a necessary option. Um, for women to have with unwed um, or with unex- excuse me unexpected pregnancies, a lot of times these are unwed mothers, um, single moms. Sometimes they might have already four or five kids in the home. Um, there are a number of reasons that bring them to that decision, and so I think saying adoption is horrible, don't do it. Foster care is horrible, don't do it. I, I think that again is a quick pendulum swing that we're seeing to this over here of well, just you know, just place your kid for adoption or just adopt or just foster. Um, it's swinging the pendulum conversation over here. And really we need to be over here going, yeah, there was problems with this, but there's also problems with this Mm -hmm. and there's, and nothing's going to be done about poverty, addiction, Christ, families in crisis, um, single women with unexpected pregnancies. If we're too busy having these conversations over here. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of like a both in and let's, let's kind of be more holistic in our approach. Um, and not ignore some of these other variables. Um, but also it doesn't mean that adoption and foster care are evil in and of themselves. That is helpful because I think a lot of times we feel like, oh gosh, well, um, I cannot adopt or I cannot participate in foster care. So I guess I have nothing to offer. And I think the conversation has lacked a lot of creativity and I see that improving, you know, you, you use the word safe families. There's actually a wonderful mm-hmm. organization. I don't know if you said that because there, that exists, but um, our church has gotten really, really involved in safe families. And a lot of people in our church are safe families. So I'll, I'll link that in the show notes as well as some mm-hmm. other options, but all that to say, you don't have to go from zero to a hundred, you know, you can go from zero to five and you can maybe resource a foster closet in your community, or you mm-hmm. can, you know, as you said, come alongside a different, um, ministry or nonprofit that's helping families who could potentially face a future crisis, but you're going to get involved and provide your resources and care and God's love, you know, 10 steps prior to that crisis. And I love that more holistic approach. And I would love to see the church just be more creative, more energetic, more committed to the long haul, as you said, because walking alongside people who have trauma or crisis is, is a lifelong commitment. It's not a six week commitment, but anyway, Absolutely. all that to say to the listener, I'm going to link some of these things in the show notes because there are ways for you to creatively participate that aren't only foster or adoption. Um, but by all means, if you have the resources and the <laughs> calling and the care and the capability, do it. Okay. Uh, Brittany, you often talk about the adoption triad. What is the adoption triad? Why should we be, you know, be talking about that when we have these conversations? When we're talking about the adoption triad, it's really a tool to talk about all members of, or all parties who are connected to adoption permanently. And so there, there has been, I will, there has been some conversation on saying, Hey, the triad's kind of an outdated thing. It doesn't include all the parties. Let's include some caseworkers here. Let's include, include this here. But the adoption triad, the reason why I like it is it is, the adoption triad is the permanent, almost covenant of people, like connection of people involved in adoption. So for me, when I think about it, I think about a triangle, the top point being the adoptee and the, you have a first family over here 
and the adoptive family over here. And these units of people are all permanently connected for life, even in a closed adoption, even if you never meet their first family, um, the footprints, the impact of and the honoring of first family is a lifelong journey. And so they are where you're you are forever connected um, in the adoption triad. And that's why I, I still use the language around triad and don't use adoption constellation. Because I think if we're using first families, that can include aunties, uncles, first, you know, first, you know, birth mom, birth dad, grandparents. I mean, I think it can even be like first family, including, you know, your local community and close friends over here. Um, but I, I don't like to include caseworkers and things like that because, you know, I, we've gone through multiple adoptions and I loved all of our caseworkers. Um, but they play a pretty, in, you know, important role for a couple of years and then they're not involved in our triad anymore. And our triad is really just these, these three units. And so, um, when we, when you hear us talk about the triad, when you hear people in adoption talking about the triad, they're simply talking about almost like the adoptive family, the adoption family of adoptee, adoptive family, and then the child's first family. Mm-hmm. I love how you said that it's like almost a covenant because that is really true. And I think you're actually shedding light on something, um, you know, that it would be a whole nother podcast in and of itself. But we tend to speak, we have anyway, historically, I think in the Western church, spoken at about adoption from a very self-centered perspective. You know, we felt called, we wanted to complete our family, but and so we went out and we did this and it silences the, or it just even neglects, or I don't know if it's, it, I think it's a combination of naivete and we're all, we all naturally drift towards being the center of our own stories and being self-centered. So um, unless it's corrected, you know, we tend to think about only the adoptive family. Um, but that's so true that your the, the adoptee comes from a, a people and a place. Mm-hmm. And when you choose, you know, to move forward in adoption, you are then really, it's true, covenanting yourself to that people in place that the child comes from, because that is such a part of who they are, that it is harmful to pretend otherwise. Um, so I hear you often when you talk about triad or, or not even using that word, but implicitly I hear you often elevating the voice of the adoptee and the first family or the birth mom. Um, talk to us more about why we haven't really heard from those voices and what what they say when we give them space to speak or some examples or what what can we learn and how can we grow in this? Well, I think, you know, use the word silencing. And I think sometimes we're like, I did not silence. I'm not silencing birth moms. I'm not silencing adoptees. But I think by nature of taking up so much space, adoptive families um, have permitted, and even whether it's intentional or not, we've permitted, um, let's just use the adoption industry as a whole to elevate our voice and our perspective as the primary one. Whereas, okay, adoptees matter, birth moms matter, and there might be like secondary or tertiary. Um, I think it's, we're seeing a movement and a shift really, but we're seeing a shift where we're saying, actually all members of that triad, their voices are important. And the goal is to really, to have an environment and home where we see a children thrive and grow into healthy, thriving adults. You know, we want those things. And so we're, we're now going, okay, so what do we need to do? Or have we done anything wrong? Um, what are some of our blind spots? And really in order to grow and learn and achieve that goal, we have to hear from all members of the triad. 
And so whereas this voice right here has taken up so much space, we pushed out adoptee voices or we pushed out birth parent voices. And naturally, we are drawn to what we're comfortable with. It is very normal to want to listen to voices that sound like ours, that speak like ours, that um, have the same viewpoints as us. We are comfortable with that. And when we start hearing maybe some voices that push back a little bit more, or maybe they don't mirror our experiences, it's easy to go, I don't listen to that. That's not true of me. That's not true of my experience. And we just kind of cut it out. But I think it's incredibly important for us to take time, especially adoptive parents take time, space, and practice of listening to birth mom voices and birth father voices as well, Um, first family and general voices and adoptee voices. Because I think with and adoptive parents, if we have all three of the triad represented equally and given them platform, I think we're going to have a more accurate view of what adoption really is and how it impacts all parties. And It'll give us just the opportunity to, to do better. Um, I want, I love my children immensely. And most adoptive parents I meet and come across love their kids. And they are working hard on getting OT and PT and all the, you know, all the therapies. And we are working hard to make sure our kids um, get what they need. And yet I sometimes find a resistance of listening to firsthand experiences of adoptees and birth families that maybe don't match with our lived experiences. And I think that it's so important for us. Um, it's a gift, truly, to help us navigate as we come along later when they're in teenage years, when they're in adult years, when they're really wrestling with some identity issues. Um, it is a gift that adult adoptees right now are saying, this was my journey. This was my experience. And instead of me going, being prideful and going, well, I'm not doing that to my kid. I can, even if it doesn't, if it's not applicable, I can say, thank you. Thank you for sharing. I want to thank you for sharing your story so that future adoptees don't have to walk through what you walk through. And even if our family doesn't sound like anything like your family, I'm so grateful for the opportunity to know that actually not all adoptive families are like mine. There are some like yours. And so I need to expand my view of what adoption looks like because I'm not just looking at it from my perspective. Hey, All Things listeners, do you guys know about Dwell Differently? Dwell Differently is a monthly scripture memory membership. Each month, Dwell picks one verse for all of their members and followers to memorize together. They put the verse on a temporary tattoo or a sticker or an art print or a key tag, sometimes jewelry, and they send it out to everyone at the beginning of the month. Seeing the verse over and over on your skin or on a sticker helps you commit it to memory. By the end of the year, you have dwelt on and memorized 12 different verses. I have been memorizing scripture with dwell for about a year and a half, and I can honestly say that the verses I've tucked away in my mind and heart have been a source of peace or courage or just kindness from the Lord, and I've recalled on them in various situations. This month's verse with dwell is, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. That's Matthew 6, 21. And I know for me, heading into this holiday season, I will be tempted to put my heart in all kinds of places. And memorizing and meditating on this verse all month is going to be a huge blessing to me. So go check out dwell at dwelldifferently.com and get yourself a monthly subscription. Or maybe you want to gift it to some people for the holidays. Let's all memorize God's word together. Hmm. 
I have really, really been so thankful of the way adoptee voices in particular have been so elevated lately. Um, and I think that's yeah. maybe just a push over the last decade or so, mm-hmm. but it seems like memoirs are coming out. There's conferences, there's websites. Again, I can, I will link some of my favorites in the show notes. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's, it is hard to lean in and to listen. Like half of me is like, this is really tough because these stories are hard. The other half of me is like, this is awesome. I, I can't, I want to hear more. I want to hear more. There's so much I need to mm-hmm. learn. There's, um, you know, it, it's so I, I do love to lean in and especially sort of read memoirs and those firsthand, you know, mm-hmm. journal accounts. Um, but it's, yeah, if you walk into that feeling like, well, we've never done anything wrong or we've never fallen short or we did everything right, which I think a lot of parents in general and maybe adoptive parents in particular hold on to tightly. Like we, yeah, I think it's subconscious, like, oh, we did the right thing. And you yeah. crack open that first memoir and you're like, oh my gosh, maybe we didn't always yeah. do the right thing. And it can be shattering, but so good. Yeah. And I think that there's freedom as Christians to be like, our faith is founded on it, the understanding that nobody's perfect. Yeah. And so we need a savior. <laughs> we need a savior. We need King Jesus to yeah. right every wrong. How dare we assume that we're not going to make any mistakes in our parenting journeys. <laughs> right. Right. And even more so with adoption. And so, you know, Ben and I are always like, oh, we're screwing up our kids. And so like, we're totally yeah. messing up our kids. Like, what are we doing wrong? And we say that jokingly, but I also think it's been a practice of releasing our rightness of, yes. okay, I did, the, I, I wasn't doing this well. Um, but I, now that I know and have this information, now that I've listened to a birth mom experience or an adoptee experience, and that kind of resonated a little bit, I can make changes and I, I can yeah. let go of shame because of Christ. And I can instead just say, you know, I'm, I can let that be a catalyst for a new conviction to change and do better and apply this or not do this or let go of that. And so I think as parenting in general, we need to come to our families with humble hearts. But one of the greatest gifts we can give our kids is saying, I'm really sorry. Yeah. I got this yeah. wrong. I, mm-hmm. I thought we were doing what was right and we didn't. And and so I'm repenting to you. I'm repenting to the Lord and then I'm going to change. And we're modeling that behavior out loud. We're modeling it in our families. So our kids have the freedom to make mistakes in their own lives. And it doesn't mean that we just sweep things under the rug or we minimize the the wound and say, well, now I expect you to forgive me right away. No, it's, we literally enter into that space and it's messy and it's hard. And we go, but the gospel, the good news is, is that we are more than our trauma. We are more than our worst mistakes. And in Christ, we have the ability to change as humans. We have the ability to 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 switch and um, practice repentance and grow. And what a gift that is to our kids to teach them that. And even throughout our adoption journeys. Yeah. I love that phrase. We are releasing our rightness (laughs) because we do somehow cling so tightly to that. And yet we aren't 100% right ever. None of us is God. Um, Well, you wrote a book, which I love, highly recommend, actually do personally recommend it frequently. It's called It Takes More Than Love, A Christian Guide to Navigating the Complexities of Cross-Cultural Adoption. So compelling title, two questions flow from the title. Should people adopt cross-culturally or transracially? And what do you mean? It takes more than love. What else does it take? Two big questions for you. The first one, well, I'll do the, should people adopt cross-culturally, transracially? Um, I'm going to borrow the words of Rebecca Carroll, 
Um, I don't know her faith background. I don't know whether she's a believer or not. And so I want to clarify, and I, I'm not friends with her, but she is a, um, she's written a memoir and, ad- and she's an adoptee. And she was on um, a news show and she was asked that question. Do you think white people, essentially, she's specifically about um, white people and black children. Should you think, do you think white people should adopt black children? And she said, um, I think that white people can absolutely adopt black kids if, big if, they will consider their racial identity needs seriously. Um, and I, I think that that's really important. Um, in the book, um, Why Are All the, the Black Kids Sitting Together in the Cafeteria? That book I also recommend. It's a phenomenal, especially if you're a white parent to black children. I think it's a great resource. Um, again, I don't know the author's faith background. Um, but she says the same thing. She says, you know, a lot of times adoptive parents said adoption's not wrong, but white adoptive parents and honestly, any adoptive parents who adopt transculturally uh, or transracially or cross-culturally, whether you're a black family adopting a white child, whether you're a Hispanic family adopting a um, a black child, anytime cross-cultural adoption is happening, even if it's white skin to white skin, if it's a white American family adopting a white Romanian child, we have to take their cultural needs and racial needs, especially if we're of different ethnicities, um, seriously. We can't neglect them. We can't erase them. We can't pretend they don't exist. And so I'll say, yes, it can happen. Um, and it and it needs to happen. There are needs. And again, like that number of 114,000 children um, currently waiting in foster care, um, not all of them are going to look like us. Mm-hmm. So there's a need and the primary need is getting them in safe, loving families. And that, that should be our primary need. And so if by chance you're adopting cross-culturally or trans-racially, um, you can do that, but you have to take the cultural and racial needs of your child very seriously. That goes everything from hair care to skin care to, you know, mentors, racial representation, to honoring our cultural foods and, and holidays and practices. It goes from, it's, it's more than just, well, I'm making sure my kid's not ashy when they go to school. It's honoring and elevating and embracing and celebrating this corner of the triad and all that it entails. Because again, our goal is not to raise kids who are just like us. It's to raise children and give them a safe and loving home where they can thrive and Lord willing one day grow into adults um, where they can belong and function and have a healthy racial identity when they're back and their first culture. Yeah. Oh, that's so good. So yeah, it, it, it takes more than love because it takes a ton of intentionality. And what you're talking about, Brittany, um, I know just from watching your family and other families um, just in real life is more than checking out a few books from the library, right? I mean, you are talking yeah. about, we might need to move our family to a different community. We might need to act, you know, 100% uproot and go join a different church. We might need yeah. to create friendships that we never have had. Um, and I think in the ideal, maybe that family would have sort of done that or not, that would be organic in them beforehand. But let's be honest, that's probably not the case. And so not only are you, you know, if you, if you're called to adoption, you're called to pop, if it's cross-cultural, which I think it almost, you know, it often is how, like how it would be rare for it to not be transracial or cross-cultural in some way. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, that's usually a part of it. Um, but you're, you're then called to some really significant changes. Um, 
can you tell us some things maybe you guys have done or, or friends of yours have done? Like what are what are some of those things just practically speaking? Like I know you said, you know, hair care and and food and holidays and mentors, but like, I don't know, maybe put a little bit more practical flesh on that yeah. for our listeners. Yeah. So one of the things that we do um, as our family, and again, this is what we do. I'm not saying everybody has to do this. I want to be very clear on some of these things. Um, I think depending on your community that you're living in, your location, like there's a number of things that, that are caveats here and nuances. So um, I'm going to share what we did, but we have chosen very intentionally that we're going to live in certain areas where our child is not going to be the only one who looks like them in our grocery stores, um, in our schools. Um, when we, we moved from Texas to Wilmington last year, and it's funny um, you know, quickly when you get a realtor, you're, you're Google searching, everyone's like, okay, you're going to want to live in this area here. And you're going to want to go to these schools. Well, so a quick Google search, I'm going racial demographics of this school, racial demographics of this area. And I'm like, Hmm, it's 97% white. That doesn't make sense because my overall geographic location is more diverse. So I, we're not going, we're intentionally not going to buy a house there. And we're intentionally not going to go to school there. So it does take a little bit more work than going, all right, I'm not going to go to these things where a lot of my peers, my all white families, my all white friends are going to. Um, We're not putting our kids in certain sporting extracurriculars where the predominant is predominantly white. We're going to our local YMCA where there is more, this happens to be more diversity because YMCA in our town is more diverse than some of the other leagues. And so we're choosing where our kids go to school, where our kids play, where are we eating at? What local restaurants are we going to? Um, what churches? And I know church is such a personal thing. It is such a personal thing, but it was important for us to make sure that our kids are not the only ones who look like them in their Sunday school class. It's a That's an incredibly high value. I don't want my kids growing up going, this is a white man's Jesus. Um, we like I, I just don't want them growing up with that belief. And so um, it's a, for us, it was important to choose a church that was more diverse. And for us, it was like, okay, so what is our key doctrines and our faith framework? So what are, what are we working from here? And then what are the churches that fit into there and which ones are the most diverse? And that might mean we're setting aside some of our personal preferences. It might mean that, honestly, if Ben and I were not a cross-cultural adoptive family, we would be at a completely different church right now. Um, but our family, one thing that I say regularly is you cannot be a cross-cultural family and live a monocultural, a monocultural life. Mm-hmm. You just, you can't be a cross-cultural family and live a monocultural life. And so I think it's important for adoptive families. When we adopt transracially or cross-culturally, we have to, if you weren't doing it beforehand, we have to start intentionally choosing to live a cross-cultural lifestyle that really infiltrates everything. And, and I, it, that can sound scary and big and like, oh, that's a big step. Moving, switching churches, school choice. That sounds really big. Um, and so what I often do is encourage families going, what are some practical things you can do today? Could you switch the sports leagues your kids are in? Mm-hmm. Um, can you start making friends just looking like naturally? Because where you live your life, we get to choose where we live our life, where we spend our money, where we do our free time, where we go to the doctor. Like We get to choose those things. Can you make some small changes initially where you do everyday life and make some shifts slowly? And I think for us, it wasn't a overnight, 
process, this has been a seven year, eight year journey of going, all right, no, now, no, when we're moving, we're definitely not living here. We're going to live here and we're going to do this. And it doesn't, it's not scary to us at all. We love it. And we've seen the joy and the fruit of living a cross-cultural life. It is such a beautiful gift. I'm so grateful that God has changed our hearts and that we've been able to learn from diverse voices about what this looks like and that um, we are able to live a diverse community where we're having people in and out of our home. And it's just a natural thing, way of life that we live. We see the kingdom of God more fully by having more diverse image bearers in our lives on a regular basis. But I also want to have empathy and understanding for people or who are maybe not here, but over here going, I just want to take a first few steps. Yeah. That's fine. Start taking some steps, start praying um, and see where the Lord's going to take you. See what mm-hmm. friendships the Lord's going to open up. Um, and and but also maybe be brave, maybe be a little brave and, and get outside your covers zone a little bit. That is great. That is super encouraging, Brittany. Um, okay. Last question before I want to ask you to kind of close us out with some, some hope and some good news. What you have really just spoken to, though you didn't use the word is representation, or that's part of the conversation. I know that that's what you studied, um, for your doctorate. And so this adoption conversation and the representation conversation, you know, definitely intersect in so many different ways. Um, and I know representation can be like a buzzword, for bad or for good, <laughs> but yeah. what is it and why do you care about it? Well, let's go ahead and just up front put, let's put our political preferences aside here, because again, you say it can be bad or for good. And mm-hmm. in this day and age, a lot of times, depending on where you're at, it can mean a lot of things. But what I want to point to is there's a, there's a um, professor at Ohio state. Her name is Dr. Rudine Bishops. And she did um, work on its research called windows and mirrors. And it's an educational theory. And it is the idea that every child, in order to see where they fit in society and to develop a healthy identity, needs both windows and mirrors. Meaning windows, they need to be able to see through a window and get a peek into another culture um, and a mirror to see themselves accurately and represented. And what happens is even in a monocultural society, when we only have monocultural books or representation in our in who we have in our home, who we have in our community, um, we start to become a little ethnocentric. We start to think we're the center of the story. Our way of doing it is right. Um, this is the best way, the only way to do this. And so it is incredibly important for cross-cultural adoptive families to have rep- re- representation um, so their kids can see where they fit and their family, where they fit in society, see themselves represented. But it's, let me be clear, it's also equally important for all white families to also have diverse books and, and diverse representation in their homes so they, they can equip and raise their kids as kingdom thinkers who understand that diversity is a kingdom gift. That yes. at the end of times when the Lord comes and we are sitting around the throne praising his name, it's not going to be people who just look like us. Um, and so you can raise little kingdom kids by choosing, actually, we're going to have representation in our home, regardless that I don't have an Asian American child or a Hispanic American child or a black American child in my home. I'm going to raise my white American kids to also have a kingdom perspective because representation matters for us all. Yeah. But for adoptive families, Mm -hmm. (laughs) it really matters Mm -hmm. because 
some of those identity core issues of where do I fit? Where do I belong? Um, what is a person like me? What kind of jobs can I have? If we only see our, or if our kids only see themselves in the stories as secondary characters, as villains, as people in the background, what message are we saying to them subconsciously? And so we've seen a push in literature, which I could, I could go on and on about this all day. We've seen a push for representation. However, I think in Christian spaces, with a gospel perspective, um, this is not representation for representation's sake. We have a kingdom-minded perspective on this, that our goal is, that, that what we see that passage in Revelation 21, is all of us equal at the foot of the cross, at the throne of the Lamb, saying, holy, holy, holy. And we can't teach our kids that. We can't say, hey, you'll be there too, whenever our Jesus Storybook Bibles, which for the record, um, that is not that, but all of our, I should just say our storybook Bibles in general um, are predominantly white. If our, if our Bibles that we're gifting our kids are predominantly just one color of person, if there are only one type of person in there, um, what are our Asian American, Hispanic American, our Middle Eastern children, our Black American children going, okay, well, I'm not in this story. So this is for you. This isn't for me. Um, so we're really trying to raise kids where they can see themselves in the story of God. They know that they are loved, valued, equal. Um, and that regardless of what society says about race, regardless of what society says about diversity, what we hold, we don't, we don't adhere to their standards. We're hold, held to a higher standard and that's, what's going to drive our perspective on representation. And so the world can sway and go and go, okay, yes, diversity. Yes, diversity. No, diversity is bad. And we can say, actually, Revelation, let's go yeah. there. Yeah. Let's go there and see what scripture says about the end of times. And let's let that be our guide um, versus whatever we see, um, you know, in our society leading the conversation on this. Oh, I love that you said that. I mean, I think once you begin to put a lens on when you read scripture, that diversity was the Lord's idea. And it's his good gift that he is so creative and therefore we are so diverse. I mean, we're going all the way back to creation, to Genesis, to his promise to yes. Abraham that he will bless every nation, every tribe, tongue, and nation. And then we see that yep. all the way through scripture and in the great commission to go to every, you know, every nation and culmination and revelation. And once you start to read scripture with the lens that God's passion is all people, um, it, yeah. it really, I think it re will revolutionize your faith. And so I, I'm thankful for that, Brittany. Um, okay. This conversation could go on forever. There's so many more things I want to talk about, but I need you to close us out. I would imagine that, you know, there are some listeners who feel some heavy burdens from this conversation, maybe regret over the way they've done it wrong, or maybe an adoptee who's listening, who's like, yeah, my parents haven't bought into this, or I don't know. I just, I know there, there can be shame and heaviness around this conversation. So can you send us out with just some hope in the Lord as we wrap this up? Yeah, I think for anyone who's listening to this right now, shame is from Satan, um, but conviction is from the Holy Spirit. And so if you're on the side going, I feel so much shame that I've not done it right. What I want to say is, no, don't you let Satan hold you there. Let's use conversations like these um, to allow conviction to take root and change to happen. And there's no shame for those who are in Christ Jesus. Um, and so we have that freedom. We have that freedom to say, I did it wrong. Thank you, God. Thank you, God, for opening my eyes. Help me do better. Um, 
for the adoptees out there going, my parents, they don't get this. They don't get my pain. Um, or the birth mom out there going, nobody understands what I've gone through. Um, what I want to say is you are more than your trauma in Christ. Um, and that does not neglect your trauma. Um, the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ means that one day God will right every wrong. But at right now here on earth, while we're still wounded, um, he is with you. He is with you in the storm and he is a God who redeems and restores. And although um, we are not promised a specific like, all right, I'm not going to tell you that, hey, your parents will keep praying for them one day. They'll get it. They might not ever. But what I will tell you is that um, our God is a God of restoration and you pray towards that end. And if you trust and hope and hold on to him, he will be with you in every value valley. He'll be with you in every storm and in every heartache. And um, in Christ, in Christ, there's nothing, nothing that can break us this side of eternity. Um, and, and again, I, I want to be careful because a lot of these passages um, have been used as spiritual band-aids to kind of just like put a band-aid on a wound of, you know, what Satan means for evil, God meant for good. Joseph, Joseph says that at the end of his journey. But what we don't see is throughout Joseph's story, he is tossed in a pit by his brothers. They, some of them wanted to murder him, sold into slavery, um, accused of sexual assault, and possibly assaulted himself by Potiphar's wife, tossed in prison. And at all those low moments, scripture doesn't say, hold on, Joseph, what Satan means for evil, God uses for good. No, at every passage, if you look through there, it says, and the Lord was with Joseph. So tossed in the pit and the Lord was with Joseph tossed into jail and the Lord was with mm -hmm. Joseph. And so what I offer today is not some platitude of what mm -hmm. the world means for evil. God means for good. It's much more richer saying, Hey, the Lord is with you. Yeah. This is not some light bandaid. This is some deep rooted heart wrenching yeah. um, resilience that takes work of the trauma that you're facing matters. It's important, but the Lord is with you and he is bigger than any heartache and any trauma you're facing right now. Thank you, Brittany. That's a great way to close us out. Thanks for your work. Thanks for your perspective. I will be linking um, all of the resources that you offer us in the show notes so people can follow along, but thanks for sharing your voice. Grateful for you. Thank you so much for having me. It was such a joy to be here. Hey, thanks so much for listening to All Things, where we look at current events and cultural trends through a Christian lens. All Things were created through Jesus and for Jesus, so we're seeking to apply his word to what's happening here and now.